it's possible, and this is all introductory to Ephesians, it is possible to be confronted with truth and you read it, you stare the truth in the face, but you rather ignore the truth. It doesn't really change you, doesn't impact you, you become callous to it. For instance, on cigarette boxes in America, we have little warning signs. And they're usually very tiny. It says, warning, the Surgeon General has determined that smoking is dangerous to your health. Well, in the United Kingdom, where they smoke more than we do, the warning, I brought one back. I didn't bring a full box of cigarettes. It's empty. Um, it's because I smoked them. No, I found this on the streets, and I wanted to show it to you. There it is. We, we um, scanned it in for you. Look what's on the box in huge letters. Smokers die younger. And another box would say something like, smoking kills. I mean, these are just in-your-face, large print statements, as if to say, you're a nut if you do this. Yet, you see people with these carrying them around, open it up, put one in, and they're holding the sign that says, smokers die younger. They have the truth. It's scientifically proven. But the truth is largely ignored. Smokers often congregate together. At least in airports, you'll see that it's a non-smoking facility, but there's this little room, often a glass room, four sides of glass, and you see these people pile into it, and they open the door, and it's like, <laughs> you know, this stuff pours out. Christians also congregate together. We have a book that if we were to put a sign on it, we might say, this book brings life. You live happier, and you will live eternally if you apply this book, and yet. It is possible to have the book, read the book, sing about the book, memorize the book, and, and not heed the book, not be changed by it. There's really no great joy in Bible study as an end for itself. The great joy is in watching God change us as we apply it. There's a dynamism. Well, we turn to the book of Ephesians, which has a theme to it. The theme is a new society, a church, a body, a new group God is establishing on the earth. God's new culture. You might even say God's counterculture. Here we are in the world, in our society, but just like in a restaurant you have a smoking section and a non-smoking section, in the world God is saying, I have my own section of believers who have my words, my truth, and I am building out of this new group of people, a culture that is counterculture that will permeate this culture and make a difference. And that is sort of the mega theme of this book. If I were to sum it up in one sentence, I would say something like, new life through Jesus Christ places us in a new group of people or a new family with new standards of living that produce new relationships with people and with God. 
New life in Christ Jesus places us in a new family with new standards and new relationships. Now, if I were to outline the book of Ephesians without getting really fancy and giving you five-page outlines, I would sum it up with three words. The wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. The wealth, who you are and what you have in Christ. The walk, what you do about it. And the war warfare, what happens because of it. And that is sort of the theme that we're going to adopt in the next few weeks as we go through this. Now let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. For it starts out by saying Paul, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this city, but first let's read the first seven verses. Now, I, uh, of course, because of communion, don't want to cover the whole chapter. I just want to introduce you to the book, introduce you to the themes, tell you a little bit about the background and why that's important. And we're going to cover seven verses, God willing. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. You probably have maps in the back of your Bible, so if you're so inclined, you could locate it quite easily. It's modern-day Turkey. But Ephesus was the capital of that part of the world a few thousand years ago. And that is because of its principal location. It was located on the trade route that went from east to west, west to east. It was right on the road. It was built on the shores of the Caister River, and, and it was not far from a seaport so that ships could dock and a, a waterway, a harborway, was provided to get right into Ephesus. Because it was on the trade routes, it was a very opulent city, wealthy city. It prospered during the Roman times, the Roman Empire, and really when we open up and look at Ephesians or Acts chapter 19 where Paul visits Ephesus, that's the world we find ourselves into, a very rich and a very influential city. Back about two millennia BC, Ephesus already started to have a population. People from Asia migrated west 
inhabited that territory, began to have their own population. But as time went on and Greece sort of took over the world, by the 11th century BC, people from Athens had already come into this area and settled it and later on used that to influence that part of the world with Greek customs, Greek language, Greek culture. Then by about 133 BC, Rome, which took over after Greece, became the principal empire, and this became part of the Roman Empire. It was during this period, during the Roman occupation, especially the first and second centuries, that Rome caused this place to explode. And as I said, it became a very, very wealthy part of the world. The governor of Asia Minor ruled from Ephesus. And the population was just a little under our population as a city. About 500,000 people occupied that city a couple thousand years ago. There was also a Jewish population. Now, this is all important because Paul comes here and he does something very important. Jews were scattered in what is called the diaspora all over the world, and a lot of them settled in this city. They were workmen. They uh, had businesses. They traded on those trade routes. And we know that some of them were present in Pentecost in the book of Acts, and they saw and heard Christianity in its inception. So they were familiar with Christ. They were familiar with what happened in Jerusalem, the explosion of Christianity. And so Paul visits Ephesus a few different times. He went on his first missionary journey, didn't spend much time there. A church was established. He came back on his second missionary journey, and he stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city that we read about. Almost three years. And you know what he was doing there? Teaching them systematically through the truths of the Scripture. He spent three years taking them through the Bible, as they had it back then, showing them how the Messiah is the fulfillment of Old Testament prediction, showing them how that Jesus is even the fulfillment of the anticipation of the Greeks. Three years he taught, and he modeled expository preaching, really. We know that because in Acts chapter 20, as Paul gathers on the shores of Miletus with the Ephesian elders, he said something that has always struck me. He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. When I was over in Scotland, I was asked to speak to a church that was a growing church, an excited group of people, and boy, were they hungry. And I don't know that I gave them anything profound. You know, it says in Proverbs that to the hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. And so they found even my words to be sweet because they were just so hungry. Every bitter thing was sweet. And I told them about the need of taking their congregation through the whole Bible, all of it. Not just doing sermonettes, not just topical preaching, but teaching them through books of the Bible. And it was like a revolutionary concept, which always strikes me as a bit odd that churches uh, look at that as some new thing. Wow. 
the Bible? In church? Huh. Wow, that's neat. That's kind of new. That's because the Bible has been thrown out of so many churches. The very next night, I spoke again. I did three nights at this one church, and the third night, it was their midweek Bible study, and I just took a chunk of Scripture and worked my way verse by verse, outlined it. At the end of the night, I had this guy so excited. Wow, I've never, I've never really seen the Bible taught expositionally. I understand that chapter now. I get what the author means, and I get what it means to me. Hungered for it. Well, Paul modeled that at the church of Ephesus. Took his people through the scripture. So really, a great gospel work started in Ephesus. Now, let's just stop for a moment and realize that. Here we are in Albuquerque, and God is doing a great thing in a lot of different churches, and not the least, perhaps, this fellowship. God's doing a work in our midst with us. Touching families, touching a community, touching a nation, touching a world. Through you, the gospel rings out. But let the church of Ephesus serve as a warning. Because all you find today in Ephesus are a bunch of rocks. And they're cool rocks. If you like archaeology, it's cool. But you have to dig pretty far under the earth to find them. You see, Jesus Christ wrote his own letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Already they were showing signs of decay. Already, shortly after Paul left the place and placed Timothy as the first bishop of Ephesus, Shortly thereafter, the church already began to decay. They had their programs. They had their organizational schemes, their flow charts. It was a fine machine, spiritually or organizationally speaking. But Jesus said, hey, I have something against you. You have left your first love. And he calls them to repent and return to that intimacy of relationship. The church historian Eusebius, who lived in Caesarea, wrote about the area of Ephesus, saying that the Apostle John spent his latter years in Ephesus. In fact, that's probably where Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent her last years, because John was given charge of Mary at the cross, you remember. And history tells us they both resided in Ephesus. But what did John do during the latter years? He spent most of his time opposing false doctrine the teachings of Nestorius. He had to spend the last part of his years combating false doctrine that was sweeping through the church. Then by around 363, 362, the Goths came in and destroyed the city, destroyed the temple of Diana, and it really never fully recovered. By the 10th century, you could find no population at all in Ephesus. Now, if you go to Ephesus today, and by the way, it's a cool place to visit if you like archaeology. When I went there, I found myself going, wow, 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 at all the temple remains and the streets, the mosaic streets, the very streets Paul walked on, the very structures that he saw, some of them are intact, 25% of the city still remains as uncovered. The rest of it is destroyed and covered. 
You can walk down the street and see the Odeon. That is the place where they had theater. You can see the Library of Celsus. You can see the um, Spring of Hadrian, uh, the Temple of Trajan. And you can see the great theater that sat 25,000 seats. Now, how many seats does the new um, Isotope Arena seat? How many? 12, 13,000? Something like that. Imagine 2,000 years ago a huge stadium made all of stone that could seat 25 to 30,000 people at one time. That's the place Paul was in. You remember the story in Acts 19 when for two hours they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now let's just talk about Diana because one thing you ought to know about the city and it does play an important role in the book. The city became really famous for its worship of the goddess Diana, or Artemis, as she is called by the Greeks. Just like Jerusalem is known as a city where there is the worship of the Jews or the Christians or even the Muslims, just like Mecca is the center of the Islam, Islamic religion, this is the center of the worship of the goddess Diana. Her temple was huge, one of the seven wonders of the world, four times the size, get this, of the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, four times the size. It took 220 years to build. It didn't take long to destroy, but it took a long time to build. Diana, they said, had an image that fell directly from heaven to the earth. That the god Zeus gave this image to mankind and they worshipped her. She was the guardian of nature, sort of the patron goddess of the earth, the animal kingdom, and especially the protector of young girls, so that young girls often cut locks of their hair and gave them as sacrifices to Diana before they were married along with their maiden clothes before they entered into that marriage relationship. She was said to assist women at childbirth and she is pictured with the weirdest most grotesque image of a, well there it is on the screen, this multi-breasted image that they say fell from heaven. In Acts 19, and you can just put a mark there and look at it later, you know, the story, Paul comes and finds this city given to idolatry. They worship this false goddess, and he preaches the gospel, and he stays there for a few years, and he gets in trouble. Anytime the Christian gospel goes against the philosophy of the day or the religion of the day, even if it's a, an apostatized form of Christianity, like in Russia with the Orthodox Russian church or all over the world gets into trouble. Paul got into trouble. A huge stampede of people ran into this 30,000 seat, 25,000 seat arena and for two hours they screamed, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Can you imagine hearing that same chant for two hours? You'd think, you know, come up with a new song. But that is what they did to incur the wrath of Diana on her enemies, thinking Paul. Finally, a city clerk comes in and stops the uproar and he says, Men of Ephesus, 
Hold your peace. For what man is there alive who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple caretaker of Diana and of her great image which fell from heaven? In the midst of this pagan culture emerges a church that is strong at first and makes an impact on that city. And Paul writes a letter. Where did he write the letter from? Jail. This guy spent a lot of time in jail. He had a prison ministry. You know how in the back of the book of Acts, the last chapter, what is that, chapter 28? We read that Paul is under house arrest and spent two whole years in his own hired house, chained to the Praetorian Sentinels, the Roman guards. So he had access to the public. They could come in and visit him, and he had visitors during the day for two years, but he couldn't really go out very much unless he was chained to a guard. And there he was in this house, chained to a guard. They did it in shifts. Can you imagine being chained to Paul the Apostle? And Paul knew he had a captive audience. And he capitalized on it. So there he is with the guy, and he would start a conversation. Do you know that God loves you? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And the guy might bristle and get mad, but he couldn't do anything. He had to just sit there and listen. Eventually, some of these guards, these elite praetorian sentinels, became believers. Because when Paul writes some of his letters, he wrote Philippians, and he talks about those who are of the guard, the special praetorian guard in the house in Rome who have come to know Christ and send their greetings. So pretty soon, if you listened to Paul and you converted to Christ, it would be a joy to be chained to him. If you're a brother in Christ, you might go to the supervisor and say, hey, listen, I know I don't have a shift till two days from now, but could I take your shift? Paul's writing a new letter. He's dictating it, and I want to hear it, man. One of the letters was the letter to Ephesus. Of his visitors, one of them was named Tychicus. Now imagine, he's in a house, and, and he hears news from some of the churches he founded, and Tychicus comes in from Ephesus and tells him what's going on. So he says, okay, take this letter and give it to the church at Ephesus. Now, I want you just to look at that, just so you get that in your mind. Look at chapter 6. Verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. He's the guy that heard Paul out and took the letter that was dictated by Paul's personal secretary, Emanuensis, as it is called, and took it to the church there at Ephesus. Now, you've got to know something about Paul's writing, and you're going to find it not only in Ephesians, but every letter virtually that Paul writes. Paul's style of writing is pretty simple. Doctrinal, followed by applicational. He always does this. He lays a doctrinal foundation. Here's some of the major truths 
that I feel you as a church need to look at. Then he spends the second part of the book applying it. And you can always tell because he'll say, so then, or therefore, or that. He, he makes this transitional statement. He gets very practical. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal. Chapters 4 through 6 are applicational. The wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, the warfare. Who you are, what you have, what is your position in Christ? Then, now that you know what you have, now that you know how rich you are, now that you see your bank account, this is how you ought to live in the world, in the church, with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your boss, etc. And then third, if you do that, if you know that, if you live this way, you can expect to be a target of Satan. And he speaks about spiritual warfare. So that is the general layout of the book of Ephesians. Now this evening, what I want to do in these first introductory verses before we take communion, and we're going to end at the high note that is perfect for the Lord's Supper, which is verse 7, speaks about the shedding of Christ's blood and the forgiveness of our sins. I want to introduce you to your bank account. N not physically, because that may not be impressive. <laughs> or you might think, no, I owe so much. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I don't want to know about my bank account. But I want to talk to you about your spiritual bank account. That is the theme of this first part of Ephesians. Your wealth, the riches that you have in Christ Jesus. By the way, you want to know something interesting about Ephesus? They called it the Bank of Asia Minor. It was a great depository of the wealth of investors in the Roman Empire. It was considered the bank. And Paul uses financial terms like inheritance, filled, and many others like it. I find a lot of Christians who just are ignorant about who they are and what they have in Christ. And it shows. They go through life as if God is so small and God can't really do much for them. Do you know how frustrating it is to go to the ATM and try to draw out money? Only to see a little sign that comes up, request denied insufficient funds. Or you go to pay something with a credit card or a check and they do a background check and they say something like, in front of everybody else, I'm sorry, sir, but your request is denied. The credit card company won't allow me to process this. And you go, I don't know what's wrong. Something must be wrong. There must be a mistake. Yeah, you don't have any money, buckaroo. It's not, it's not fun to be broke. But what if you're not broke? What if you have disposable cash as far as the eye could see up to any amount but either you don't know about it or you don't act on it. That's the situation perhaps with some of us. Back in the 1900s, there was a lady they called Americans, America's greatest miser, Hetty Green. Hetty Green died in 1916 and left $100 million in her estate. $100 million. Now back in 1916, that was, that was a lot of money. That's a lot of money today. 
$100 million. However, Hetty Green ate cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay to heat it. When her son had a severe leg injury, because she waited to find a free clinic in the city to treat her son's ailment, he had to have eventually the leg amputated due to an advanced infection. She had so much. She could have bought a private hospital to deal with her son's ailment. We need to know what's in the account. And the first few verses, in fact, the first chapter, gives us that spiritual bank account of how rich we are. Now, let's just go back to verse 1 and look at some of these remarks that Paul makes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Let me ask you a question. How did Paul know that he was an apostle by the will of God? Do you know the answer? I know you do. You may not think you do, but you do. He knew he was an apostle because in his previous experience under Judaism, he was an apostle against Christianity as an, a, a representative of the Jewish government trying to stamp it out. But he had an interesting experience on the Damascus Road. He got knocked off of his horse that he was riding. The Lord got his attention. He gave his life to Christ. And his apostleship began with a single question. Do you remember what the question was? He said, after he asked, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, the guy that you're after. Gotcha. His apostleship began with a single question. He asked this question, what do you want me to do, Lord? That began the most exciting adventure for this guy in his whole life. He became a representative of Christ, and God put a fire in him that never stopped until the day he was taken to heaven. He became an apostle, a representative, a called-out representative of the kingdom of God by the will of God. One simple question, what do you want me to do, Lord? I find some believers that never get around to even asking God that question. We make our plans. I want to do this. I want to do that. I'm going to plan this. But stop. Have you ever asked, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? I can say, skip a pastor by the will of God. Others might say, marry a secretary by the will of God. Uh, David, a police officer by the will of God. Your occupation is the best, as long as it's by the will of God. There's nothing greater, nothing more exciting than knowing that your life is lived according to the will of God. Ask God that question, because that's where the excitement of life comes in. I remember when I was working in the hospital, and I knew God called me to do it, temporarily at least. And I get up in the morning and go, here goes, another day. I'm going to push a little time clock thing. I'm going to start, do the same routine that I do every day, but because it's by the will of God, I wonder what people might be in my path that I could speak to today, what, what example I could leave, what kind of opportunities God might have for me. 
It's exciting to live in the will of God. What do you want me to do, Lord? Thus, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I would suggest that you live your life by this guide. What does God want you to do? Well, I don't know. He hadn't told me. He has. Maybe not specifically, but he will. As you, Romans 12, lay your life down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, he'll do it. I determined that I would live my life, my marriage, wherever I would move, my ministry, by the will of God. I married my wife knowing it was the will of God. Now, it wasn't like I got this epiphany, thou shalt marry Lenya, and I had no feelings for her, or I didn't think she was attractive. I'm only marrying you because it's God's will. I knew it was God's will because all those other things were there. But I knew that I wanted to know it was God's will because 10 years down the line, when we're looking at each other, married, with all the responsibility of life, and it's not a good day, and it's not a good situation, and certain things in our world are falling apart, I want to be able to look at her and say, you know why we're together? Because it's the will of God which would carry us through anything. Moving to Albuquerque, I knew at the time it was the will of God. The ministry, by the will of God, it's a great way and an important way to live one's life. By the way, even if your life is in shambles, even if you have messed it up so bad, you think so bad, and I could give examples. Let's say you did dumb things and now you're horribly in debt, or you committed some crime and you have a prison sentence ahead of you, or you had sex out of marriage and now you're straddled with this responsibility of a child, etc. Even from right now, you can say, Lord, given my situation right here, right now, what do you want me to do? And make that your determination, and you'll watch God do some great things. To the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. Who are saints? Are those just dead guys or dead gals with little frisbees on their head in the pictures? You know, they're glowing frisbees. That's what I thought. I, I grew up with their pictures. I saw them in the windows. I was in Europe last week. I saw all the windows with the, the, the frisbees. That's what they look like to Californians, little frisbees on their head. One of the most misunderstood words in the Bible is the word saint, hagios, the Greek word. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, they won't help you. They will say an officially recognized person canonized by the body of, of people called the church because of their preeminent holiness. Number two, those departed spirits of people who have followed God's way and are now dead. So it, according to Webster, you have to be near perfect and dead <laughs> to be a saint. That is not the biblical New Testament meaning. The New Living Translation says to all of God's people. And the idea of a saint is those who are living and devoted, consecrated to Christ. Every Christian is a saint. 
If you belong to Christ, you are a saint. Now, I hear people say, well, listen, I'm no saint, but I try my best. Do you know Christ? Yep, you're a saint. You're called that. You may not have the Frisbee yet, but you're a saint. <laughs> so, if you like, you can start calling me Saint Skip. That's just, it's biblical. And I could call you saint by your first name. It would be biblical. All the saints who are in Christ who are in Ephesus. Notice something else, though, about the saints. They're faithful in Christ. See, a saint isn't just a churchgoer. It's someone who applies, lives, is fashioned by the truth of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typical Pauline title. I've covered it so many times. Don't even have to really go through the meaning of that. Except to notice this. Lord Jesus Christ. In that you have his name, his title, and his mission. Or I should say his title, Lord, his name, Jesus, his mission, Messiah Christ. See, a lot of people think Jesus Christ is his first and last name. Like the mailbox in Nazareth would read, the Christ family, attention Jesus. It's not his name, it's his mission. His name was Yeshua bar Yosef, Jesus the son of Joseph. And the mail would take it to that address in Nazareth. But his mission was the Messiah, the anointed one, to save us from our sin. That's the implication, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get to the heart of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. God loves to bless people. Did you know that? Did you know that God is in the business of blessing people? That's part of his nature as being the God of love. How, now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean God gives you everything you want and claim and think you need. Because honestly, you don't always know what you need. He does. But I've prayed for that and I've longed for that for years. The Lord knows what you need before you ask him. I remember as a 10-year-old asking my dad for the car keys. Now, I could beg and scream and cry for months. If he's a good dad, he's not going to give me the keys. And he didn't. But God is in the business of blessing us. However, what I want you to notice, what's preeminent in Paul's mind, is he's blessing God or thanking God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Most people, most of us, most Christians, when they talk about being blessed by God, think purely on the physical level. Sentences such as, oh, God has blessed me. God has blessed me with a new car. Come and look at it. God has blessed me with a new house. Come and check it out. God blessed me with a new job. God has blessed me with health. Don't misunderstand me. Those are all terrific blessings. But... There are some blessings that are even better than those. Because frankly, 
Those things don't make you satisfied, do they? Because, you see, I know people with new cars and new homes and great jobs and perfect bodies because of their health who are miserable. But I don't know anybody in Christ knowing their spiritual bank account on a personal level with Jesus who is unsatisfied. And so there are spiritual blessings that are even better. In Psalm 103, David speaks about the blessings of God. I think you know the psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless his holy name. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know what's first on the list? Spiritual blessing. Who forgives all your iniquities. So all of these things are blessings, but principally, foremost, first on the list, the place of greatest satisfaction are these spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, briefly and quickly, before we take the Lord's Supper tonight, I'm going to just give you a few of these, and we're going to go back and rehash and finish the first chapter next week and look more at some of them, but there's five I want you to notice. Spiritual blessing number one, what is in your bank account? He chose us. He chose us. Now, you know, I know of some people that this truth bothers greatly. It bothers some people that God would have the right to choose people. Now, here we are created in the image of God, so we have the right to make choices in life, but somehow God, who is God, can't choose who's going to be saved and not saved. When he's God, he has the ultimate prerogative of choice. And we'll talk, again, more about that and more in depth about sovereign election and free will next time, but first blessing, God chose you. I've got to tell you something. It doesn't bother me that God chooses people to be saved. You know why? <laughs> because he chose me. I'm very excited that God has this prerogative of choice and that he said, I want you on my team. Yeah! Now some people would say, well, that's not fair. Well, what do you mean it's not fair? It's not fair because I'm not a Christian and maybe according to your theology, if this is true, that God didn't choose me. Which means, according to them, they can never be saved. However, Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. And I would tell a person who says, it's not fair. I would say, are you a believer? No. Why not? I don't want to be. Oh, really? Well, tell you what. If you want to be, and if you tonight, today, come to that choice of, I need Christ, I'm going to give him my life, you will find that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do I completely get it? Uh-uh. Do I understand it? Nope. Do I believe it? Sure. And I'm excited about it. Because God's sovereign choice in salvation never has precluded anyone who has a desire to be saved to be saved. Come unto me, all you that labor. Jesus gave an invitation to make a decision.
the way I pictured it before is you see a door down a hallway. Several choices you could make. And you see one choice, one door, and you open the door. Because it says, whosoever will, let him come. And you go, hmm, I wonder what that is. So you open the door, and you see a table set in that room for a banquet. And you see your name tag at one of the plates. And you go, oh, that's weird. My name's here as if I've been expected. The door closes behind you. You read the inside of the door, and you see yet another sign that says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Now, you made the choice to go in only to discover you were chosen first. Jesus said to his disciples, who chose him, you didn't choose me, I chose you. There's a combination of human choice, free will, and yet sovereign election. Do I understand it? Uh-uh. Does it bother me? Do I lose sleep over it? Not a, not a, not a wink. Not a wink. Now, when are we chosen? Are we chosen when we perform? When we reach a level of holiness and God sees the halo starting to glow? Mm, now, there's, there's a holy guy. Look at him. I'm going to choose him. He chose you before you were even in embryo. In fact, before there were any embryos. Before the foundations of the world, God chose you. Charles Spurgeon was fond of saying, it's a good thing God chose me before he created the world and before I was born, because he never would have afterwards. <laughs> and I can only say that part of the answer to this mystery lies in a capacity that God has that we don't. It's called foreknowledge. Now just stay with me for a minute. Maybe taking a deep breath, get more oxygen going, and listen to this. It's out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me just read it to you. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia Minor, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 90, Moses, who authored that psalm, said, We live our life as a tale that has been told. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. God has seen it a long time ago. He knows, he has foreknowledge of the position and disposition of our heart, our choices, etc. And based upon what he knows, he makes his choice. Knowing, perhaps, what our choice will be. Either way, we're elected. God picked us to be on his team before the foundation of the world. You ever pause and just think of that? Oh, but Lord, I want a new house. Oh, but Lord, I don't have a new car. Oh, but I need a better job. And, and again, all those are legitimate. Jesus told you to ask. But you ever stop and go, wow, I'm saved. I'm picked. I'm chosen. Number two, second blessing, you've been adopted into his family. We'll talk more about that next time. But it says in verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now let me explain something. You're not, you're not part of the family of God by adoption. You have to be born into this family, born again. The idea of adoption here speaks of conferring the rights 
of adult sons unto a person. I'm giving you the right to enjoy your inheritance right now. That's the meaning of adoption. I've chosen you, and because of that, I'm conferring upon you an adoptive position so that as an adult, mature child in a home at that time, you get to enjoy your inheritance right now. Thing is, we got to know what it is. Did you know that William Randolph Hearst, you've heard of him, Hearst Castle in California. William Randolph Hearst was searching for a painting that he read about in a, in a catalog, in a magazine. Oh, he had to have it, he said. It is something that I, I want, I must have, I'll spare any expense. So they searched the world for it. A couple months later, they came back to him, red faced and said, Mr. Hearst, it's been in your basement for years. You already own it. You just didn't know that you owned it. So we need to know what this inheritance, what this adoption is all about. Number three, we've been accepted, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. I often hear people say, you must accept Christ. As if there's sort of Jesus timidly standing on the sideline, timidly knocking on the door of your heart saying, please, please, if, you, if you're not too busy, could you accept me? You want to know what the truth is? He accepts you. He accepts us. It's not like here we are, sovereign man, and there's little old God out in the cold, needing another heart to reside in. Great sovereign God needs nobody. But he has condescended to accept us. And I don't want to be too semantical, but we don't really accept him. We receive him, and he accepts us. He says, you're mine. In the Beloved. Number four, we've been redeemed. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is the language of the slave market. There were six million slaves. Did you know that in the Roman Empire back then? Six million of them. They were bought and sold like furniture. It was possible to buy a slave solely for the purpose of setting it free. That was redemption. Jesus bought us. We were slaves, imprisoned. He set us free. We went to a prison in Scotland this time. We went there last time and, and addressed the 10 worst criminals in the country. They were all mass murderers. And they locked us up in this little pod with them. We went back again this year, and we were speaking to them and playing a little concert. And I said the stupidest thing you could say in a prison. You want to know what it was? Night was dragging on. I said, if you have time, I'd like to play a couple more songs. <laughs> like, where are they going? And one of the prisoners shouted out in a Scottish brogue, I got 30 years. <laughs> but I thought, here they are, captive, wanting to be free. They will be there, this guy, for another 30 years if he lives that long. Truth is, we're all captive to Satan and to sin without redemption. And how does the redemption come? Through his blood. Now we're zeroing it into communion. Through his blood, the forgiveness 
That gives us the fifth blessing or spiritual benefit, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So you see, this love of God received into our hearts because of the cross of Christ enables us to have new life, which gives us a new status as his family, new standards, new relationships. And it all comes back to the cross, the blood which gives us forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. Man's greatest need, man's greatest need is forgiveness. Did you know that? Man's greatest need is forgiveness. We have a guilt complex. Psychologists try to weasel it away or explain it away or give you years of therapy to deal with it. The cross deals with it. And did you know that forgiveness is God's greatest accomplishment, his greatest work? Let me ask you something. If you were to choose between God's creation, creating the heavens and the earth, the whole world, and God's redemption, what would you say would be his greatest act? It would be redemption. And that is seen simply by the press. That is, how much of the Bible covers God's creation? Like a verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then there's an elucidation on that. But how much speaks about redemption? Like most of it. Right? Forgiveness is our greatest need. It's the theme of the Bible. Now, I want to close with that thought. Do you ever stop to do what Paul is telling us to do? Realize how rich you are spiritually. And instead of complaining, I don't have the car, the house, the job, the health. Ah, oh, but what I have, what I have, I'm so wealthy. Thank you, Lord. Let me ask you something. Could you thank God honestly if he never did anything else for you except save you from hell and make you fit for heaven? If God never did anything else but kept you out of hell and got you to heaven, nothing else, could you say thank you? You should. We ought to be able to. I'm going to read something to you, and I want you to say it along with me. And as I do this, I'm going to ask the worship band to come because we're going to pass out the elements. Every Passover, which these elements speak of, every Passover, there was a section in the Passover meal called the Dayenu. Now, I've shared this with you before over the years, but maybe you've forgotten about it. The dayenu is a Hebrew word, dayenu, which means we would have been satisfied. And the principal actor, I should say, or the father, the mentor of the meal would say something, and the, those around the table would say, dayenu, it would have been enough. Now, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say the first part. Let's make it interactive. You say, dayenu. Okay, If he had merely rescued us from Egypt, but had not punished the Egyptians, Dayenu. 
If he had merely punished the Egyptians but had not destroyed their gods, knew. If he had merely destroyed their gods but had not slain their firstborn, Daye knew. If he had merely slain their firstborn but had not given us their property, if he had merely given us their property but had not split the sea for us, if he had merely split the sea for us but had not brought us through on dry ground, if he had merely brought us through on dry ground but not drowned our oppressors, if he had merely drowned our oppressors but had not supplied us in the desert for 40 years, if he had merely supplied us in the desert for 40 years but had not fed us with manna, if he had merely fed us with manna but had not given us the Sabbath, if he had merely given us the Sabbath but had not brought us to Mount Sinai, if he had merely brought us to Mount Sinai but had not given us the Torah, if he had merely given us the Torah but had not brought us through to the land of Israel, if he had merely brought us to the land of Israel but had not built for us the temple. And Christians should be able to say, if he merely, if we could even use that term, gave us salvation through the blood of his son and nothing else. Daye knew. But you know what? As you take these elements now, and we're going to pass them out and wait till we all take them together, do you know that God has given us more? Do you know that Romans 8.32 says that if God spared not his only son but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? These are the spiritual blessings.